Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today, we're joined with registered dietitian, Ryan Whitcomb, and we're going to talk about food sensitivities. Hi there. <laughs> Was I supposed to jump in there? No, it's all good. Ryan, uh, what's up, man? How you doing? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on. And I know that food sensitivities is something that you specifically work with a lot. So who better to have on the show to talk about this topic than the one and only? Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, food sensitivities are one of my favorite topics. I've been a dietitian for eight years now. It's a second career for me. And it was something I never thought I was ever going to go into. I had never heard about them, never learned about them in school. It really wasn't until after I got into uh, dietetics. It, that's when that world opened up to me. And it all just kind of happened unexpectedly. And here I've been ever since. And it's a welcome change. And I deal with it every day. And uh, it's, it's always good to get the word out because I think a lot of people have a misconception about what food sensitivities are, how they work. They use them interchangeably with intolerances and allergies. And there tends to be a lot of, uh, I guess you could say, poo-pooing of the fact that these things exist by other practitioners. So I think I'm here today to set the record straight and we can get into it. Awesome, awesome. Yes. Now, what I wanna start with is a brief history into what did you do before and then what led you to dietetics and then what led you from there into getting into gut health and food sensitivities? Oh my God, that could be an hour in and of itself, <laughs> but I will, I will be brief. Um, so the first question to, to answer is, what was it again? How I got into uh, what, what, what I what did was, before dietetics? Yeah, yeah, what, what was career number one? That was actually, believe it or not, radio. No wow. way, really? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and, now here you, and now here you are on the Great Nutrition Podcast. I know, it is. It's, it's a weird marriage of the two. But when I went to school, originally, I went to Ithaca for uh, communications, television, radio, and I graduated with a TVR degree from there. And from there, I wanted to work in radio. And so after college, I was working at a radio station at the front desk, nothing really exciting, but it was my way in. But it wasn't until I got there that I realized radio is not all that it is cracked up to be because at that point in time, that's where they were starting to automate a lot of the overnight shifts. And that's where new DJs like myself would have ordinarily been placed. So now there's nowhere for me to go. I can't get in, especially in a big market. And I did try to work upstate because that's where I went to school, but they're paying $20,000. This was back in 2005. And believe it or not, I thought that was a lot of money back then. And I, would, I, I was really happy to take any job that anyone gave me for that amount of money, but no one did. <laughs> so I eventually worked for a trucking company for, for a few years, believe it or not. And then one day I was at my gym and I've been going to this gym for a number of years. And I noticed there was a sign that said nutritionist on the back. And I thought, what is nutritionist? I've never heard of this 
profession before. And so I went in and I spoke with her and I learned about what she did and what she could do for me. Because at, at the time, well, you can't really tell because you're only listening to my voice, but I'm very tall and lanky and I want to be big. I've always wanted <laughs> to be rip muscles, you know, veins popping out. It's just, that, that's just not who I am. I have not been blessed with those genes. So I figured maybe I could do a few things. Arguably, I'd say you may just not have tapped into your genetic ceiling yet and you could probably get there. Well, you know, if this pandemic would ever end and the gyms would reopen, maybe I could get there. <laughs> but it's, it's coming. Been, it's coming. I don't know. I've given up. I'm, I'm eating Oreos now. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Learned helplessness. And so um, I went to this nutritionist. She explained, you know, what she could do. And, you know, understand, I had a very, very um, picky a diet. I'm a very picky eater, even to this day. And I do blame my mother for this. And I blame my sisters because they used to put things in my food because they knew I wouldn't eat it. So they felt that they could sneak it in, that I would eat it. And then they would say, oh, we just put X in your food and you didn't gag. So you must like it. Well, that made me not ever want to try new foods because I didn't trust them. And so I've always been a picky eater. And so she got me to eat eggs. I was in my early 20s, I had never eaten an egg before. Now, yes, you could argue I had an egg in a baked product, but I had never eaten an actual egg at that point in time. I had never had, gosh, what else? Uh, broccoli. I had never had peas. I mean, there were a lot of foods I never, ever got to eat um, prior to seeing this nutritionist. And so she was really good in the sense that she got me to try new foods. But the problem was she wasn't actually qualified. And so I ended up gaining weight, which is what I wanted. But rather than gaining muscle, I gained 30 pounds of fat. You know, after I went through this process, I realized, you know, and I did some research on this person. It turns out she had a degree in environmental science and she just did this as a hobby on the side. And so it made me start to do a little bit of research. Then I came across nutritionist, dietitian, and all these other you know, fields in, you know, in that area that deal with diet. And so I thought to myself, that's interesting. I didn't realize that was a real thing. And so I kind of sat in that information for a little while um, and the weight stayed on. And it was frustrating because I'm trying to lose all the weight that I put on and it wasn't coming off. So I said, you know what? I'm going back to school. I'm going to go back to school just for myself, not for anyone else. And I'm going to learn how to lose this weight properly, which when you think about it, it's a dumb idea because I'm going to spend $20,000, $30,000 on a degree when I could have just gone to Weight Watchers and spent a lot less money. I could have gone to the gym and, or you know, some other gym and paid someone a little less money to, to do that. So anyway, I uh, you know went back to school to become a dietitian in my mid, I think I was around 28 when I went back. And that was just for myself. But as the years have gone on, that's progressed into so many other things. So now the dietetics isn't just for me, it's for others as well. But again, I really only specialize in food sensitivities and a few other you know niche areas. But bodybuilding, oh, don't, don't ask me how to look like their own because that ain't, <laughs> I can't do that on my own. <laughs> so if you need any help with that, I got it covered. But um, You know what, a guy? What, I, I might know a guy or a girl, Nicole. But so let me ask you this, like why specifically food sensitivities? How'd you get specifically kind of like hyper-focused with your career on that? 
Okay, that's a really good question, and it comes up a lot. And the, the way that it happened, like I said, was very unexpected. My idea going into dietetics was for myself to lose weight, and that was it. But as I went through it, I went through the, the, four, the four years undergrad, then I did the dietetic internship. And it wasn't until the very end of my dietetic internship that I went to a conference. And while I was at this conference, I saw two dietitians speaking together on the topic of food sensitivities. And I was a bit intrigued by it. And I wanted to meet other dietitians in the field and you know, people that were already practicing. So I felt it was my duty to listen and then afterwards ask questions. And I'm listening to this lady, I'm thinking, this lady's full of shite. This stuff isn't real. I don't get any, I didn't, I've never learned any of this stuff. This is all bogus. And then the other dietitian came up behind her and started speaking. And she was the one that actually caught my, my interest because her husband suffered from really bad sleep issues. And he was the kind of person who would wake up in the morning after eight, nine hours of sleep and always felt exhausted. And that was me. That was when I said to myself, hmm, that's interesting. No one's ever mentioned it could be food before. It's probably not food related for me. I probably have some other issue, but you know, good to know. And then I kind of took that information, put it in the back of my head and sat on it for a while, finished the internship, got registered, started practicing. And it really wasn't until I got involved with functional medicine that, which that, you know, was also an unexpected twist. When that happened, I realized that food sensitivities were in fact a real thing. So then I thought, okay, I, I need to learn more about this. So rather than just learning the theory behind it, I said, I'm going to do it myself. And so I did that got tested, had the uh, protocol implemented, and within 14 days, my chronic sinusitis went away, my rhinitis went away, and my sleeping became so much better, and I, did no, I no longer woke up exhausted, okay? There were times when I would drive to school, you know, before the internship, I would fall asleep on the highway, going to school, could you, 55 miles an hour, 60, 70 miles an hour, and I fall asleep I'm while glad. I'm driving. I'm glad you're here to tell the story. Oh my I was God. just going to say the same thing. I'm <laughs> so know. happy you're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it happened three times. Now, you'd think after the first time I would have ran to the doctor <laughs> right away. But again, I was waking up at five o'clock in the morning. I was going to the gym. I was working uh, 20 hours a week. I was going to school full time, commuting in and out of Queens. And I just assumed that it was me just doing too much, burning the candle at both ends. Well, here's but a question wasn't. too. Like if you would have gone to the doctor, like what? They wouldn't have told you well, anything anyway, right? Yeah. What, what is the doctor going to do for you at that point? Exactly. Well, 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 that is a gute Frage. That means good question in German. So <laughs> I did. At some point after my internship, I, I moved back to, to New York and I was working. I went to see a doctor, a sleep doctor because I thought there's gotta be more to this. You know, I am missing something and it, it can't be diet. That's just so crazy, right? How could food do that? So I went to the sleep doctor and I had three sleep studies done. And he said to me, you have sleep apnea, you know, case closed, which I thought was rather odd because like I said, I'm, I've always been tall and lanky. So why would this be a thing for me? Sleep apnea only happens to people that are overweight or obese. But he said, no, no, happens to you know, people that are normal weight all the time and never questioned it. So I got the CPAP. I got the mouthpiece. The CPAP didn't work. And so then I tried the mouthpiece. And after using the mouthpiece for about four months, it actually threw off the alignment of my bite. So I could no longer chew foods. And so what would happen was I would choke on food as I was swallowing. And this could be fibrous foods like broccoli, 
or breads or anything really that wasn't soft, like eggs. You know, that eggs I wouldn't uh, choke on, but everything else was fair game. So I went to the doctor, to the dentist, and he figured out the bite issue. He had me go back to the sleep doctor. And long story short, the sleep doctor just told me to, to chew on plastic tubing to fix my bite. That was his, his advice to me. Go, go, buy, you know, go to Ace Hardware, pick up some plastic tubing, and just gnaw on it like an animal for 10 minutes every morning, and that'll help. So at that point, I realized I'm on my own. This guy can't help me. That sounds like groundbreaking advice. <laughs> I'm just thinking, what? who thinks that that's actual, that, that you would actually go and do that too? I mean, well, but here's the did, thing. You, did you think of all that as an actual option? No, no. Okay. But okay. <laughs> so when he's thinking, you know, telling me to do this, I'm thinking to myself, uh, no, this guy can't help me. And I really am on my own. I really do need to figure this out because there's no reason I should have sleep apnea. No one in my family has it. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe I'm just a genetic defect. You know, maybe there's something in me that's, you know, different from everyone else. I can accept that. But I still wanted to figure out what the problem was. So that's when I turned to food. And that was when I said, you know what? I got nothing to lose here because that CPAP is very intrusive. Ever try sleeping with that? It's not fun. And cleaning that out every morning is also not fun. You can get um, mold in there. You can get bacteria that builds up. It's, It's not pretty. So I went the food route, got myself tested, implemented the protocol. And I am not kidding you. Within two weeks, my, my nose just opened right up. I was able to breathe again for the first time in years. I was able to sleep. I would wake up all refreshed. I had dreams for the first time in years that I had never had. Now, I know they say that everyone dreams, but I can assure you, I could never remember my dreams prior to that. And the dreams were very vivid. I remember having a dream where this was just after I got the results back, wheat came up as reactive. I dreamt that I was in a field of wheat in Iowa and I was just eating the wheat off the stalks in this field crying as I was eating it because I knew I wasn't allowed to eat it, but I liked it so much that that's what I did. And I I ate what I knew I shouldn't have. And I cried the whole time in the dream. (laughs) (laughs) So once I figured all this stuff out and I realized, oh my gosh, this is working. I thought, let me see if I can get a few other people on board with this. So I roped up a few guinea pigs and lo and behold, they all did very well. One of them dropped out. She just didn't want to go forward with it anymore. But one lady actually had something called skin morphia, which I had never heard of before. And it's this skin disease that she has had, had, she had for many years. And do you know, within three weeks of the diet, avoiding all of her reactive foods, her skin morphia vanished completely. Now, I don't want to say that food sensitivity testing will help you get rid of your sleep apnea. I'm not going to say that it's going to cure you of skin morphia or anything else because I'm not a doctor. I actually left my doctor because he wasn't able to help me. He wasn't looking in the right directions. He's telling me to know on plastic tubing. That to me just wasn't an answer. That was not something that I was willing to do. So I don't want to make any wild claims that it, that it cures anyone or it prevents anything. I'm just experiencing you know, my story. I'm, I'm sharing my story with you guys and the people that I've worked with but it's one of those things where you have to stick with it in order to see the results. If you stick with it for two weeks and you notice a difference and then you go back to your old diet, well, everything comes back. I have <laughs> a question. Stinks, but that's <laughs> how it is. Okay, Nicole. I have a question. So here's something. So you were saying that when you initially heard about food sensitivities at that conference, your initial reaction was 
that you didn't believe it. What was it about your training or education in dietetics that made you feel like that wasn't something that was an actual, you know, option or something that could actually affect your body that way, I guess? Okay. So that's, oh, I love that question. I, I never thought about it in that context before, but mm -hmm. all right, let me lay it all out on the table for you. Okay. So as dietitians, we go to school because we know that food can be healing. If you have a certain condition like Crohn's disease, colitis, IBS, we're going to use food as a therapeutic tool to help you get better, to remove your, your stress, to remove the symptoms so that you can move about your day and go along, no problem, as if it never even existed. So we know that food can be therapeutic in that regard. So rather than take away foods, we're going to give you foods that maybe you weren't adding into your diet that were missing, and maybe that's why you have the issue. So when you frame it in the other way, like the woman was saying, she was basically saying, it's these foods that you're eating, we need to remove them, but we won't know what the foods are until you're tested. That to me seemed a bit, a bit woo. I'll, I'll be honest with you, because I was thinking of food as being therapeutic, not harmful. And so it was a change of, of mindset that made me think, nope, nope, she's wrong. She, this is bunk, I, I'm not going any further. But when I opened my mind about a year or two later, uh, it, it worked. <laughs> I have to say, for me, it worked. For everyone, you know, some people, I've worked with people where it hasn't worked, and I'm willing to admit that. But for myself and others, it has. Well, I, I'd say it's, it's, it's definitely not a perfect system just yet. Um, one of the things that I find with things like food sensitivity or e even other aspects of nutrition when it comes to nutritional research is the practitioners are on the forefront. And they're seeing the anecdote of what they're, what they're recommending and they're seeing anecdotal evidence of it working. And then what seems to be happening is that years later, you know, everyone's like, oh, that's crap. It doesn't work. And then years later, the research ends up typically catching up to things that like we already know. Mm -hmm. Right. So now there is some aspect of that with food sensitivities. I think one of the first things that I want to cover with you is what are food sensitivities and how do they differ from maybe intolerant uh, intolerances or allergies in terms of your body and immune response? Is there a difference there? What's your take on that? And then I want to kind of get into a little bit on the different types of uh, strategies or different types of testing that we use for food sensitivities and, you know, what the research currently shows. <laughs> so, that was a long one. So I have let's to think so, about one. <laughs> so let's start. Let's start with what food sensitivities are, and what's the difference between that and an intolerance and an allergy. Okay, perfect. So the way that I look at it is, the food sensitivities are basically just an immune reaction to a food or foods that you're consuming. At its basic definition, that's essentially what it is. When you consume these foods, your immune system, for whatever reason, thinks that the foods are foreign objects. They're dangerous. And so your immune system needs to protect you by neutralizing the threat. And it does that by releasing what we call mediators, which is just a really fancy way of saying chemicals into the bloodstream to neutralize the threat. Now, it does a great job at doing that. But the problem is, is that it leaves its destruction in its path. So destruction could be organ damage, inflammation, tissue damage, things along those lines. Now, when you think about it, that really sounds like an allergy, right? I mean, an overreaction of the immune system to a food that you're eating. And 
to be honest, the definitions in my mind are one and the same. It's the process. It's how it happens is different. Okay. Now an intolerance is something entirely different because an intolerance just means that you don't have the enzyme to break that food down. And because you don't have the enzyme to break it down, the food travels all the way through your small intestines and into the large intestine, where it's then broken down by bacteria that reside there. And when those bacteria break it down, then you release gas, hydrogen, methane, all of these other things, gases that build up into the colon, they cause abdominal bloating, distension, diarrhea, things along those lines. Now, those symptoms can also be um, indicative of a food allergy or a food sensitivity as well. And that's why this can become so difficult to figure out what's going on. Now, so your next question was, you know, how do they all kind of differ? So food allergy basically is something called a type one hypersensitivity reaction. And that involves something called immunoglobulin E. And immunoglobulin is just um, an antibody in the body. And so basically, if someone has an allergy to a food, let's just use peanuts as an example, because that's a pretty common one. A person who has a peanut allergy, they will have immunoglobulin E against peanut just already preloaded into their body, okay, on the mast cells. And now we're talking, and, we're talking against um, the specific protein in peanuts, right? Correct, yeah, the, the, the protein in peanuts, the IgE is gonna go after because it's specific for that peanut uh, protein. And so your body has no other preloaded uh, IgE to it, it's just the peanut. So every time it sees that peanut exposure, it's gonna rapidly release everything into the, uh, the bloodstream. And typically that's gonna be histamine. And so that histamine will then cause a swelling, perhaps an anaphylactic reaction. Some people just get um, hives or, or nausea, but in others it can be fatal. Well, if you compare and contrast that to what a food sensitivity is, IgE does not play a role at all. And that's the major difference. Mast cells don't really play much of a part at all. So very similar reaction, it's just that the cells and the uh, antibody that are playing a role vary. That's it. So with a food sensitivity, it's a non-IgE reaction. It's a type 3 and a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction, okay? So in a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction, you have IgG, you have IgM, and you have complement that play a role in the, the reactive process. Whereas in type 4, you have T cells. And again, there's no IgE in these reactions. And so if you were to eat these foods that you have a sensitivity to, you're not going to die. You're, you're not going to die. It's never going to kill you. It will make your life a living hell, but it's never actually going to kill you. And the difference, again, between the two is food allergies, the symptoms are acute. You'll know if you're allergic to a food because often seconds to minutes after you eat that food, every time you eat it, you experience a very strong reaction. It's unmistakable. Whereas a food sensitivity, this is the really tricky thing. It can take up to 72 hours for that food to elicit a response. So it can take three days for those symptoms to now appear. You'd never think something you ate three days ago was causing your reaction now. And that's another reason why diagnosis is difficult because you're not going back far enough. The reaction happened now from something you did three days ago, but a food allergy, it's almost immediate. That's such an, that's such a great point and such a great, a powerful, um, you know, statement for our listeners, because when I see clients and we have them track food, that's one of the things that we, I'll have them go back into their journals and be like, let's just take a look. 
let's look at what you had over the weekend versus during the week, foods that you brought to work mm -hmm. that you cooked yourself versus foods that you may have, you know, purchased, uh, you know, like a, a prepped meal, what was in it, things of that nature. So. Yeah. Cool. And also, Oh, I was going to just jump in real quickly and it's add to that. Um, the other thing about it though, and this is also very tricky, is that the food sensitivity, it's dose dependent. So with a food allergy, it just takes one molecule of that peanut to trigger a response. So have you ever heard of the story where a person ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and then four hours later kissed somebody with a peanut allergy and that person died? I mean, yeah. that happens. I mean, that, that does happen. Yeah. I mean, you don't really need much to trigger a reaction, but a food sensitivity, it depends on the food that's reacting. So you might need a little bit or a lot. So you might have someone come to you, Nicole, that says, gee, you know, I thought I had an issue with, I don't know, let's say cabbage. And I had a bite of it at dinner the other night and I was fine. But when I ate a whole cabbage at dinner, you know, the next day, I had diarrhea. Right. And the so dose it, is deadly. <laughs> dose, dose can make the poison in the food sensitivity. Yeah. It's not always one bite. For some people, they might need to eat a whole plate of it in order to trigger a response. Yeah, exactly. You're saying like 72 hour period, right? So up to, yeah. Up to. So it could be something that they ate anywhere from three days ago up until the point of, so you have to really look at like a three day recall of mm -hmm. what have you been eating and just kind of judge based on all the things that they've been eating. Correct. Also knowing that the dose makes the poison. Right. And that also adds to the complexity to it. Yeah. Because I have person... had, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, well, ladies first, so I'll continue. Oh no, um... I was, <laughs> go ahead, please. <laughs> that, go, was, go, go. that was a joke about, against me. <laughs> um, Oh, now I forgot what I was going to say. It's I'm, out sorry. The I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, that's it. Ryan, your time is up. Nicole, back to you. <laughs> oh, I see the cane coming. <laughs> I just love this topic because I myself have experienced um, food intolerances, or excuse me, food sensitivities. And it's exactly how you're describing it. I could have something on a Monday and I didn't get a stomach upset until Thursday. And I would be going back in my head like, what did I eat and why am I feeling this way? It took me months and months to figure out exactly what was going on before I started to realize what my triggers were. Well, so here's what I want to say is because Nicole, you brought up your triggers. I, I, since I've cut out two things, dairy and peanuts, you know, peanuts, we always think about, like you mentioned, like we think about a allergy and, you know, I'm going to go into anaphylactic shock. I'm going to break it out into hives. And we don't think of these little, like I went by years. I use a neti pot. I take Claritin. Yep. I use a nasal spray. I went years relying on that stuff. And I'm like, my nose just always feels stuffed. And yes. it's, it's not stuffed. It's inflamed, right? Yeah. It's my sinus cavity inflamed. And removing peanuts was like a game changer for my life. Now, <laughs> do I still get allergies? Yeah, absolutely. But I don't have to use my neti pot every single day. I don't need to rely on these other things that are going to help to reduce inflammation for me. I, I'm relying on my diet in part, right? As part of my plan to be able to breathe out of my nose, really, right? Like it's, it's like that, um, uh, what's that show with the mouth breather? Uh, Cricket. Damn it, with the Cricket. kids. I don't know. Anyway, oh, that one. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna come. It's gonna come to me. Um, At three o'clock in the morning tonight. It's yeah, gonna it'll come pop to you. in your head. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just gonna have to jump on and re-record it. <laughs> but uh, 
on that note, yeah, peanuts were definitely a thing for me. So what I want to talk about with you is, you know, that was a symptom for me. So what are some typical symptoms that you'll find from food sensitivities? And also, what are the most common foods that people are sensitive to? Oh, this, this is unfair. This is an unfair question, Daron, because... The problem with the symptoms is that, and I'll give you a list. I mean, I, I, I can rattle this off, but the problem is they're so vague. And yeah. so when you think of them, you're not thinking of food sensitivities. You're thinking of something else. So a really good example could be diarrhea, right? So maybe you're thinking of lactose intolerance. Maybe that's why. Maybe you're thinking uh, undiagnosed celiac disease or some undiagnosed medical condition or autoimmune disease. Or maybe you're thinking of stress, right? Who hasn't had... Uh, so much stress that they just they get the runs it's gonna you know, yeah. happen to all of us um or on the flip I'm side implicating like, myself in any way or, shape or, or form. on the flip side right like <laughs> eczema eczema is a thing and yeah. it's worsened by certain foods that people yes eat, right? yeah, yeah eczema is yeah well see that's one that isn't vague that one if someone says to me that they have eczema right away i'm gonna think food sensitivity but diarrhea i'm gonna think ah it could be something different you know what what else are you missing uh another one could be i'm just trying to think your fatigue I mean, that could be a B12 deficiency. That could be a lack of sleep. That could be undiagnosed sleep apnea. That could be, again, a leaky gut where you aren't absorbing your nutrients. And so therefore you have nutrient deficiencies. It could be an iron deficiency. I mean, there's so many things that fatigue could be a symptom of. We also have people that are uh, sinus strip. That one, that was not one that I had, but I've had a few clients that have had that as well. But you'd never think, oh, sinus strip must be because of food. Like a post post nasal drip. Yeah, you yeah. never think of that. So they can be a, a bit uh, difficult to to figure out. Or uh, migraines. Okay, a lot of migraine people have. Oh, you're one of them, Nicole. Interesting. That uh, was me. I had migraines and some bloating, and I met with our one of our dear friends, Bridget. Oh, Carol. I know Bridget. Carol. Yes, I know you do. So she's who I went to when I started to experience some of these symptoms, and digestive enzymes were a game changer. I haven't had a headache since I started using them. Yeah, but see, food- I would have never thought that. And no. I, like you were saying at the beginning, you were like, this is so silly. How could it be food? I mean, and I take pride in the fact that I eat very healthy and I exercise mm-hmm. and I'm a trainer and I know how to take care of myself. Definitely you, missed that. <laughs> you know, there's one thing that I learned in school that really you know, to this day upsets me and they still talk about it and it drives me up a wall. When people say things like salmon's anti-inflammatory, it has lots of omega-3s in it. Turmeric, very anti-inflammatory or ginger's very anti-inflammatory. That, that upsets me because that's not true. I've had so many clients that were actually reactive to those foods. And so for them, they were eating it because they think that they're doing a good thing. Right. That they're decreasing their inflammatory load. No, they're increasing it. They're increasing their stress bucket. And so your body can only cope with so much stress. Mm-hmm. But because we live in a society where stress is every day and it's chronic, our body can't handle that. Our body's not meant for that. There's a and book then it's called, individual, right? That has course, to be indiv- based on absolutely. the individual's stress. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, some people can handle stress better than others. I'm probably one of those people that I have a lower threshold, whereas other people might be able to have a lot more stress in their lives and, you know, not even flinch. So it, it, 
it's so personalized. And that's what, what kills me is that in a way, I feel like as dietitians and nutritionists, we're just spreading all these myths out there, not realizing that we're doing all this harm when we say things like, oh, turmeric's great for you. You know, go, go take some of that, you know, sprinkle that in your food for dinner and, and you'll be fine. Because for some people, you're actually making their symptoms worse. I have two things to say. One, it's not 3 a.m. and the show was Stranger Things. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Mouth breather. <laughs> and, I never watched Stranger Things, so I wasn't aware of that. Great show. Uh, and the second thing I was going to say is that's just on like a side topic. The turmeric thing for me is tough because turmeric to begin with is so difficult to absorb. Yeah, it is. That, yes. that, that I'm like... I, I don't even know if it's worth it to recommend unless we find something, some other way to have some like pre-converted form where, you know, your body doesn't have to do the work and, and you're good to go. Well, it's funny you say that, Daron, because I also teach as an adjunct on the side and I have students every quarter who will at some point have to answer the question and about how would you decrease this patient's inflammatory load? What are some things you'd recommend? And oftentimes they might recommend a turmeric or sometimes they'll talk about how this brand of turmeric is better absorbed than this one. And I'll be honest, I don't always know if that brand of turmeric that they're talking about is better absorbed because when it comes to supplements, and I'm not anti-supplement at all, but manufacturers are always trying to one-up each other. And I don't know if you know this company's turmeric supplement is better absorbed than this one. Their literature shows that each one is better absorbed than the other one. So I don't necessarily know which one's the case. And it can be tricky to know whether it's, you know, even worthwhile to take. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things that we know, right? We know that it's fat soluble. So if it's in, in, a, in a liquid soft gel, it would probably be a little bit more absorption. And then we also know that they're making, you know, um, bioparine and, and when they mix it with black pepper extract, there's something in the black mm -hmm. pepper extract that will increase the bioavailability. But even with those things, it's still very difficult to absorb. Yeah. All right. So back on topic, testing. I want to get into the testing with you. So there are different tests that are available and there's specific tests that you use over others. Is that correct? Correct. So there are a number of tests on the market. I think for my own protection and safety, I am not going to actually name the competitors that I don't use because I don't want an angry mob to come after me and uh, <laughs> you know cause me some troubles. But I will say that there are a number of tests out there that test for this. And again, I am a big believer in food sensitivities. I want to put that out there, but that doesn't mean that every test out there is effective or useful or helpful. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the tests look at IgG, okay, immunoglobulin G. Now, as we previously mentioned, in a type three hypersensitivity, there's more than just IgG that's playing a role. You also have IgM, you also have complement. In the type four, you have T cells. So when you're looking at IgG only, that's the only thing you're gonna be testing and it's the only thing you're going to be recording. And since we know that there are other mechanisms in play, I don't really like the idea of IgG testing because you're just getting a sliver of what's actually going on in the body. So the test that I use, um, it's called MRT, mediator release test. And I just want to put this out there that I don't work for the company. I don't make any money off of them. I don't get any kickbacks, commission, sales. The money always goes one way. I pay them for my patients' tests. The money never goes back to me in any way, shape, or form. So I'm free to criticize them and critique them as I see fit. And you know what? If another company comes up in five years from now, 10 years from now with a better product, 
I'm going to use it because I want to get my patients the best results. The patients are the people I answer to, not to the lab. But I use MRT because they use something called an endpoint test. It's an indirect test to test for a reaction in the body. And it doesn't matter what mechanism is playing up. It doesn't matter if it's IgG, doesn't matter if it's IgM, complement T cells, irrelevant. If there's a reaction, it's going to be recorded. And the way that they record, it's actually kind of interesting. They're looking at a um, ratio of liquids to solids. So let's say, for instance, we take a little vial, okay, maybe this big. Okay, so we're a podcast. You can't actually see what I'm doing. So I'm taking my fingers and making them really small. You know, it's little, about little a little tiny it's about violin. Right? <laughs> yeah. So let's say we have a vial that's about 100 milliliter, uh, one, one milliliter. I'm really bad with metric. So uh, let's pretend like this makes sense. So you have 700 microliters in this test tube, okay? And let's say that the 700 uh, liters is liquid. It's the blood. And then the other 300 microliters are the solids. That would be the immune cells. So together, your total volume is one milliliter, okay? Because you have 700 and 300, that's, you know, that's uh, 1,000 and that's one milliliter. Now, if there's a reaction, you're going to have a change in the solids to liquids ratio. So the cells are actually going to get smaller because they're releasing chemicals into the blood to neutralize the threat. So the, the uh, solids will go from 300 microliters down to, let's say, 100 microliters. And then the, the blood, the, the liquids, will go from 700 to 900 because it's now gaining the chemicals that came out of the white blood cells. So your total volume is still the same. It's just that the ratio of uh, liquids and solids has now changed. So that's how they can determine whether there has been an effect or not. Now, if there's no effect and the food is not reactive, nothing's going to happen. It's not going to do anything. Kind of like Bridget. She just doesn't do anything for her clients. <laughs> <laughs> Zing! Wowza! Shots, shots fired. Shots I'm, fired, I'm, B. I'm out for blood. <laughs> well, she did something for this client right here, Bridget, so I got you back, girl. <laughs> well, so here's a question for you. Reliability and reproducibility, where are we at in the research with that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the research, the latest research that I have shows that the test that I use is about 92% specific and about, uh, no, sensitive, and then about 90% sensitive. So they are at that threshold of about, you know, good, you know, what a good lab test should be. Could it be better? Oh my gosh, I'd love to see 100% for both. But the problem is with a lab test, you'll never have that. There's no such thing as a perfect lab test. So there are instances where there are false negatives. There are instances where a food comes up as non-reactive, but it turns out it is reactive. But sometimes not for the reason you think, not because your immune system's reacting to it, but there could be a non-immune component to it, to that food. So for instance, uh, broccoli for some people just causes gas not because the immune system is reacting to it, but because it's just a gas forming food in general. So people that are hypersensitive to that and have sensitive guts, they're going to feel that more. Even though the test is saying it's non-reactive, that's something we still have to consider. So there's no perfect test, but I think 92 and 90% are pretty good overall. Let me ask you this, US, uh, you, you're mentioning um, broccoli as a uh, gas producing, right? So that, that would be in your colon. Mm -hmm. essentially. And that would be like a bacterial thing. So how do we differentiate food sensitivity from uh, reaction to like FODMAPs? Is that different or are we looking at a, one in the same? Oh, that 
is so good. Such a good question. So good. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's so they're very different. So with FODMAPs, we're looking at things that are fermentable in the gut. And I got to say, I'm just going to put this out there. I'm not a huge fan of FODMAPs. And I'm going to explain why. But because we're taking away the carbohydrates that are fermentable. And I get the rationale behind it. Because if it's fermenting, it's probably brewing in the colon and it's causing gas formation, which is then leading to all these unpleasant symptoms. I get that. But the issue I have is because you're taking out all of these really good foods that are fermenting, you're getting rid of some of the prebiotics that you're your microbiome needs in order to thrive. So you're not so, feeding, you're not feeding the bacteria. So. You're not feeding your microbiome. You're not feeding the bacteria. So can this diet be helpful for a week or two? Absolutely. Would I put someone on it long-term? Absolutely not. Because now you're, you're hurting the microbiome, which by the way, um, is in the gut. About 70 to 80% of our immune system is in the gut. And that's what we're trying to heal. So in a way, I feel like we're almost hurting ourselves more than we're helping with the FODMAP diet. There's a difference there, right? And then you're saying that you would recommend if somebody does a FODMAP diet to do it for a short period of time and maybe reintroduce the foods. Or what I would say is- Dose. May, right? Maybe even, not even just dose, but you have foods that are uh, moderate in their effect in terms of FODMAPs. Or you have foods mm -hmm. that are, have a very high effect and then you have foods that have a low or virtually no effect, right? So maybe potentially still feeding that bacteria, but people get, keeping people in that kind of moderate place they might not end up with that discomfort, that bloat, that gas, and things of, things of that such. Absolutely. And the thing is, there's always a fine line for everyone. And everyone's going to react differently. So how my body would react might be different from yours and Nicole's. And so if you can find those foods that are fermentable, but not too fermentable that they cause a problem, then that person might be successful in their attempt at the diet. But again, that might be trial and error for the patient. And if they're not willing to go through that, it's going to make it tough. So you have to find someone that is willing to stick with it and trial those foods out for the long haul, because you're probably not going to figure it out at one time. It might take you a few weeks to figure out what, which foods are safe and which ones aren't. Well, that from a nutrition standpoint, like I look at that and I'm like, well, I mean, this is your life's journey, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like you've been living with discomfort your whole life and now you go and you come and you see a dietitian and the dietitian's like, hey, this is going to be a lengthy process. And you're like, I want it now. And it's like, well, what's the difference? You've been living this way anyway. So <laughs> yeah, give it a shot. Give it a shot so that maybe the last 30, 40, 50 years of your life, you can live without discomfort because you spent a couple of years, right? Let's say even a year which is nothing in comparison to your entire life. Like you spent one year fixing the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. That is such a good way to look at it. And I wish some patients looked at it like that. But when you've been living in a body that's been under all the stress for 30 years, 40 years, yes, your body can heal itself, but you have to give it the tools to do so. But you also have to be patient because this damage you've accumulated over the course of your lifetime isn't going to go away in a matter of a day, a week, a month. It's going to take time for the body to heal. The symptoms might resolve rather quickly within two to three weeks or so, maybe a month, but the long-term effects are going to take a lot longer to heal. No let, me, let me ask you this. So you said 72 hours for, I'm kind of backtracking a little bit here. You said 72 hours for uh, something to potentially have a reaction within that 72 hour period. Mm -hmm. How long does it take for that reaction to subside? 
That was my exact question. Oh, yeah. you know what? I don't think I have a good answer for that because I feel like it really depends on the person. And that's such a cop-out. I realize that that's <laughs> such a cop-out answer. And right. I tend to say that a lot. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he's a quack. All right, we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's that cane again coming from that, my neck. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> But, but it I depends know, on how fast, it depends on how quickly they heal, right? Depending well, I guess on the it person. would depend on your individual immune system then. Yeah. Absolutely. And all the other things that are going on, plus your medical status. But I can tell you from right. my experience, chicken, I have been reactive to chicken for, gosh, over four years that I've known about. And to this day, I'm still reactive to that stupid food. And I love chicken. If I could eat chicken every day, I absolutely would. The problem is I am reactive to it, and so I can't. But there are times when I do decide to cheat, and they're not many, but if I go away, and typically I say to myself, if I go away overseas, and my access to procuring uh, similar foods or foods I'm familiar with is limited, then just go for the chicken. Don't stress yourself out, because that extra stress might be doing more harm than the actual food. If I'm here in the country and I'm moving about, I can always get to a grocery store. I can always get to an Airbnb and cook for myself. Although with the pandemic right now, I wouldn't touch that with the 10-foot pole. But when things go back to normal, that's always my workaround. But if I do have chicken for whatever reason, okay, I find that the next day, so I'll usually have chicken at nighttime, five, six o'clock at night. I wake up early. I'm, I'm, I'm an early bird. So the next morning, about maybe 10 hours later, that's when I'm feeling it. I feel like I've been hit by a truck. It's going, and, and I've been dragged for 11 miles. I can't get out of bed. I can't open my eyes. I'm just slow to start. My brain is um, not working. It has a lot of that brain fog. And so it takes me a few hours to get out of that. Now, whether that has been happening while I've been sleeping, I don't know because I'm sleeping. But I do know 10 hours later or so when I wake up, it's already hitting me. I mean, it's, it's horrible. And I can't wait for that day to, to uh, pass. And then how long does it take for it to subside? For you? Oh, oh my gosh, it, it could be all day. I will have at two in the afternoon, I'll have to lie down for a nap once two o'clock in the afternoon, because I just can't get through the day. Okay, so here's my question. So when you talk about sensitivities, intolerances, and then a food allergy, can, can you start as a sensitivity turn into an intolerance and then create an allergy or are they all separate? That is such an exciting question for me to answer because no one's ever asked that question before. I think about that because if I think about it from, if I'm sensitive to something and I ignore that, like you're talking like, okay, I've had 10 years of Daron eating peanuts and his sinuses. Does it just hit that and stay there? Or could he turn, could that potentially turn into an allergy down the line if he lets that go? Or does it depend on the person? So as far as I know, they're two separate processes mm -hmm. and they will never cross over into the other. It's two different so immune reactions. Two right? two, exactly. Yeah. So one is IgE, one is not. So if you have an IgE a, immune reaction to a food, it's never going to just turn into a non-IgE and the non-IgE won't just suddenly become an IgE. It's, okay. it's like um, a really good way to think about this. Let's use the United States inter uh, you know highway system mm -hmm. so we have i-95 that runs from maine to florida on the east coast and we have i-5 that runs from washington to california on the west coast they're both going north south they run parallel to each other but a driver on i-5 can't get to 95 you know directly yep and 
a driver on I-95 can't get to I-5 directly. Yeah. So that's how I like to think about it. They're, they're two separate systems, two separate highways doing two separate things. That's independent great. of each other. It's basically Good an analogy. Nice, it's basically a nice way of saying you asked a dumb question. <laughs> that was a dumb question. <laughs> no, How listen. Would you be so stupid. <laughs> listen, I'm asking. <laughs> Shut up, Daron. Remember, remember when your teacher told you there's no such thing as a dumb question? <laughs> that they, was one. They lied. Listen, I'm asking for our listeners. One and two. I'm asking because unless you are, unless you know that they are two separate immune responses and that they can't cross over. That's something that people would want to know. So listen, I'm trying to support our listenership. They need to know all, they want all the facts. All right. So basically Nicole cares about our listeners, but yes. I could care less. Is that what you're saying? Basically. That's what I'm getting. That's Darrell. exactly it. That's so what I'm hearing. All right, I know all right. anybody listening is going to, going to be on, on my side of this. Team, team boss lady. Team boss lady. We talked about the testing. I want to talk about the strategies, right? So let's say you test somebody, they've got uh, a peanut sensitivity or in your case, chicken uh, or eggs are, is a common one for people, right? So it's so individualized that some people do and others don't. But I want to just say one thing. It's never just one food. In my practice, I've seen people have between 19 to 29 foods every single time. They so let me tested. ask you this. You test somebody. Mm-hmm. You get 19 what's, or 20 foods. What's the strategy there? Yeah, what's the first step there? So first I cry because I have to now tell this person that this is <laughs> their future. <laughs> then I regroup. But from there, what I do is I create the Immunocom diet protocol. And that's another thing that I like about MRT is that the dietitians who use it, they all implement the same kind of protocol, whereas other testing that is using IgG only may or may not have that. So that's the other thing that I like about this. And what the Immunocom diet is, is it's saying, rather than looking at it from the perspective, perspective of what you can't have, it's saying, Darone, you can have these foods based on your results. So we know that these foods are a problem for you. So we're not going to put them in. We're going to put these, these foods over here in the green. We're going to sprinkle those into your diet. So what I do with each patient is for 75 minutes, I sit down with them and I go through it and I say, okay, we're going to do 20 to 25 foods for the first two weeks. Then after that, we're going to add more foods in. Then a week after that, we're going to add more foods in. After that, we're going to add more foods and then more foods after that. So it's about five phases. And each phase, with the exception of the first phase, lasts one week or so. The first phase lasts two. And so... We'll just go through, and I might have a patient that says to me, so the results show that I'm not reactive to carob, but I don't even know what carob is. Do I have to eat that? And the answer would be no. I'm not going to give you a food that you've never had before, because if you don't like it, now I'm setting you up for failure. What is the purpose of giving you a food that you're going to have to now eat pretty much consistently for the next few weeks if I have no guarantee that you even like it. So we're going to put foods in that we know are non-reactive, that you like, and that you've been eating quite regularly before the test you know, occurred. We're going to put those foods in and we're going to do it uh, very slowly. So as I mentioned before, the first phase, you only get 20 to 25 foods. I mean, it's pretty limited. Now as a dietitian, I don't like seeing a diet like that because I think to myself, nutritionally, it's limited. They're not getting all of their vitamins. They're not getting all of their nutrients. It seems a bit restrictive. But this is just for two weeks. After that, we can add new foods in. And then we just keep going from there. So I'm okay with doing it for two weeks, but I wouldn't go any longer than that. 
Are you adding foods in and then are you retesting? What's going on there? Right. So what we do is we take out foods that are moderately reactive for three months. And then any food that is reactive, we take that out for six months. And so what I say to my clients is it's really up to you how you want to proceed. If you want to keep adding foods in as you go along, and if you're feeling fine, your symptoms have not returned, there's no need to be retested. But if all of a sudden, a few months out, you're noticing that these symptoms are coming back, then we might want to get you retested because your sensitivities might have changed. And that is something I don't think people realize. Because when you think of an allergy, you think of it as fixed. Okay. Yes, perhaps children can outgrow their allergies, but if you're an adult and you have an, an allergy, chances are you're not outgrowing that. That's stuck with you for life. Although there is some research into a certain kind of, um, I forget what they call it, but uh, it's testing where you take a little bit of the antigen and you expose yourself to it slowly over the course of weeks. But that's you know still in the beginning stages. So um, what we'll do is we'll just have them avoid their uh, moderately reactive and reactive foods for quite a bit. And if they're noticing that these symptoms are coming back, then they might have to get retested. The other thing that I wanted to mention though, is that at a certain point, they are going to challenge their, their uh, reactive foods, but that's up to them if, and when they want to do that, if they don't want to do it, they don't have to, I'm not going to force them to, if they're feeling great and they're on cloud nine, well, why do I want to end the party? But sometimes if you don't end the party, you won't find out which foods maybe you're able to bring back in. So you could potentially be limiting yourself um, unnecessarily. And one of the ways that we prevent food sensitivities from forming again is by avoiding that food. So complete abstinence of that food. But here's the thing. Your immune cells are so incredibly smart. They have this thing called memory. And every time you eat that food, it's going to remember that you've eaten that food. And it's going to remember whether it's a good food or a bad food. And if it's a bad food, it's all chemical warfare. But now if after a while of not eating that food, the memory goes away. And so if you eat that food again, you might not have that same reaction. You might actually be okay. But the problem is it really depends on the cell or cells that are reacting. And some cells might only have an issue for a month or so, but others might take a year, seven years, or some, in some cases, you never get that food back because the cell never forgets. So it's just a process of trial and error. Have we, I mean, I guess there's a lot, there's a long way to go in the research, right? In terms of this, because it seems like there are things that we're definitely certain on and there's mm-hmm. things that are, we still kind of have to like look further into, right? Like what is it about these specific foods that is causing a immune response uh there's different types of proteins in all different foods right like so i know with now they came out with what is it a2 milk yeah uh, with with where they've removed uh a specific type of casein and the link i think in the casein right so so you're left with one that so typically what they're saying is with milk allergies you're typically allergic to one type of casein protein versus another yeah, so it really depends on the person. Someone could have an issue with casein. Uh, others might not have uh, an issue with casein. Or in some people with an intolerance, it might just be the actual link between the, the two uh, milk sugars that are holding the lactose together. That's why they can't break it because they don't have the enzymes to break that link. Mm-hmm. So um, every person's different. So I guess my question is, you know, where are we in the research on this right now? Ah, okay. So I want to just say that I don't want to make this sound like this is settled science. Okay. It's not. 
we have a lot of research on food allergies. We know the mechanisms behind that. We know how it works and we're looking towards treatment for it. But that's still light years away. When it comes to food sensitivities, there is research there. The problem is, one, it's not nearly as numerous as food allergies. Two, a lot of it is conducted in Europe, and so it's in European journals. And unless you're a practitioner going out of your way, probably not going to read that journal, and so therefore you won't be aware of it. The other issue, though, that I have is I don't really think anyone's looking for a cure. And the reason I say that is because who benefits? The drug companies don't benefit. And again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm against pharmaceuticals. You know, for certain conditions, they, they, they have their case. You know, they have their need. So I'm not anti-medicine. But in this instance, if the pharmaceutical companies can't patent it, what are they going to do? Why would they research this? Who's going to research it? And then so if you have a lab research this stuff, then the results that come out, people can always accuse them of bias because you're a lab that's testing for this kind of thing. And now you're showing that it exists. Are you only showing it exists because you have a financial gain to make or because it's really real? Now, just because a company, you know, they, they um, support financially a research project and the results come back in favor of that same company, it doesn't necessarily mean that that the results are inaccurate. It doesn't necessarily mean that those results are only positive because the company will gain. It could be that, yes, there really is a connection and that's why the company wanted to sponsor it. I, but- I, would, say, I would say this, just to touch up on that point that you're bringing up is, and I say this all the time, that if, if you think that a university doesn't have a, a vested interest in their research and a, a, a potentially a bias, I've seen bullshit studies come from universities and the studies from the researcher, they're, they're continuously funded based on producing results. If you produce results, mm-hmm. you're going to get more money. So you're going to have an implicit bias as a professor, even working at a university. And, and also, if you've d- dedicated your entire life to research, you're going to want to prove your point, right? Whether, whether or not a company's doing it or a university is doing it, to me, that's never a, a validation of, hey, is this study a, a, a good study or is it a poorly done study, right? That can be done anywhere. And I think the biggest thing to do is to know how to look at research, look at their methods, how they came up with their results and then say, okay, well, you know, is it statistically, I can't even speak. Is it statistically significant? What, you know, what, what did they pull out from the study? And is it just a, a properly conducted study, regardless if it came from a company or not to me, never really matters. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I would agree with that. But the other thing, when you're looking at studies, I mean, I agree that a lot of people don't know how to critique studies. They don't understand how to do it. They don't know what to look for because a lot of people aren't trained to do that. And so it's not even a matter of methodology. Sometimes it could just be a matter of how many people were in the study. If you're looking at a study of 10 people, well, you could never extrapolate that information and then put that across to the general public. There's just no way. It's, it's 10 people. And if you're looking at a study that's done on female athletes, well, again, you could ne- even if it was 1,000 women, you could never actually extrapolate that to the larger population or any males because it wasn't studied on them. So I think, you know, one of the things that bothers me about research is, and I laugh every time I see it, at the very end, it always says, more research is needed. And I think, oh, 
what was the point of this if you're just going to say more research is needed? Yeah. Can't this be definitive? And, and to, <laughs> to your point, and I, I bring this up as an example all the time. I remember reading Rob Wolf's um, The Paleo Solution, and he cited a study in there about lectins because the whole paleo thing was surrounded by nightshades and lectins and how, we, how our ancestors mm-hmm. ate and uh, how lectins cause auto, autoimmunity and, and they cause this, this cascade of immune responses. And uh, one of the studies that he referenced was a study on people who already suffered from autoimmunity, which in the study stated that it was 1% of the population. And then 1% of that 1% of the, of the population, uh, <laughs> their autoimmunity was worsened by lectins. And then the conclusion in his book was nobody should, eat, nobody should eat lectins. And I'm <laughs> like, dude, based on 1% of 1% of the population, are you kidding me? Oh, is that a problem? (laughs) (laughs) But see, it's funny. I don't look at it as what's in this food that's causing the reaction. My question is the opposite is why is this person's immune system reacting to this food? So it's not the food. So let's go into that. So how do we fix somebody's immune system? That's the better question. Okay. So I know you spoke with Bridget uh, earlier in the season and did she discuss the, um, the uh, like five R protocol with you guys at all? Okay. So it's pretty much the same thing. I'm going to add my own little flair to it just because, you know, so explain to us again, explain (laughs) to us again, explain to us again what the five R protocol is, because I think that's important to know. Yeah. So it, it really depends on who you ask. So some people call it the 4R protocol. Others call it the 5R. The way that I describe it, I call it the 5R, but in reality, it's really just 4R. So it's a little confusing. But the first one for me is always remove the foods that you're allergic, sensitive, or intolerant to. So if you know definitively that there's a food or foods that you cannot have, you must remove it because you're causing damage to your body every single time you eat it. Now, where that damage is occurring can be very different for everyone you know, out there. So some people will have brain damage. You know, That's why maybe you'll have some migraines that are occurring because your brain is, is now inflamed. That's causing damage to the brain. Others, it could be, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, others could have arthritis, so they're having inflammation in their joints. Others have inflammation in their skin. You know, dermatitis heteriformis. I think that's how you say it, but that's just the way that celiac disease manifests on the skin. So how it happens for everyone is different. But the first thing, remove those foods. Then the other four R's, it really depends on what from my perspective, what path you then want to take moving forward. You know, there's replace, repopulate, repair, and rebalance. And when it comes to replace, one of the things that we like to say is we want to replace any vitamins or nutrients that are missing in the person's diet. And the reason you want to do that is because those nutrients are vital to your health and success. And you obviously have a need for them. And so if they're not there, the body isn't going to act in a way that it's supposed to act. It's not going to do the things it's supposed to do. So your car requires gas. If you don't put gas in it, it's not going to go anywhere. And that's the same kind of, I guess, um, parallel that you could say with uh, nutrients. Um, But again, someone might say to me, well, what are some nutrients that you'd recommend? But again, that's so individualized. You know, I'm not going to just say, well, everyone needs an omega-3 because some people might have really good omega-3 blood levels and they're fine. But typically, if we're looking about gut health, L-glutamine would be a good example that can be very therapeutic to the lining of the gut, but not everybody might need that. So it just depends on that individual person. The next one is repopulate. Although I had a professor who hated that label, he called it restore, because he said you can never re-inoculate yourself with native bacteria once they're gone. So you can take probiotics via a pill, 
But those probiotics are just there for about 10 days in your gut before they're out. So it's transient. Once you've lost bacteria, you know, good bacteria from your microbiome, you can't get it back. You can supplement for sure. But within 10 days, those guys are out. So, so then are we saying that you would ha just have to supplement with those strains forever? Forever. Yeah. And it's some tough. might even argue that you need to mix up what you're putting into your body in order to create that diversity. Because if you're always putting the same probiotic in, uh, even though it, it is transient, is there a possibility that at some point in time it could outcrowd or overcrowd some of the other guys that are in there? So I don't know definitively. And the other thing about probiotics that I want to mention is that people use this word as if, you know, probiotics are just all the same and that they're all interchangeable, but they're not. Probiotics are very strain specific and the strains determine what they can and cannot do. And if you're taking a strain that's really helpful for IBS, but you have, let's say, I don't know, diabetes, you might make your, uh, make your diabetes worse because it's not meant to treat diabetes, it's meant to treat IBS, or it's meant to treat something else. And so people will say to me, oh, I take a probiotic, so I'm fine. And then I think, well, what probiotic do you take? And they show me. And nine times out of 10, the strain is not listed. If the strain is not listed, get rid of it. It's garbage. You don't know what you're getting. You don't even know if it's helping you at that point. So it'll list the genus and the species, like Lactobacillus um, aphidophilus, but the strain, what is it? LA5, what? What is that strain? If you don't have that strain after the genus and the species, throw it out. Okay, and then we were at, we were in your R, so. Okay, yes, yeah, so yeah. Um, I get so excited, sometimes I just lose my spot. <laughs> uh, I'm like a little chihuahua, you know, I'm always barking and jumping. So the next thing you want to do is repair uh, any damage that's occurred in your body. And one of the ways you do this really goes back to the replace method where you want to replace any nutrients that are missing. Because again, your body can't heal itself if it doesn't have the nutrients to do so. So vitamin A would be very beneficial to gut, uh, the gut health because a secretory immunoglobulin A needs vitamin A in order to thrive. And secretory IgA is this mucus that sits on the outside of your, your um, intestines to prevent bad bugs from sticking. And it also keeps things uh, moving along very nicely. Without that mucus, you could then have a breakdown of the tissue. Uh, zinc is also very helpful. Again, glutamine also very helpful, but depending on the person and their medical condition, how long these issues have been going on for, they might not need zinc. They might not need vitamin A. You know, it, it, it's all very personalized. And then the last thing you would do is rebalance. So rebalance is the, the method of removing external stressors, calming yourself down and using techniques to, to calm down the sympathetic nervous system and increase the parasympathetic nervous system. So the, the, uh, the sympathetic is a uh, fight or flight and parasympathetic is rest and digest. So things like yoga, deep breathing, um, meditation, those are all really helpful for rebalancing one's body. So those are the five R's. Those are the things that you want to do to help your gut to heal it so that food sensitivities may not be an issue in the future. However, I have other things that I like to add that are not really part of the five R protocol. And I think that they should be, but not everyone would agree. But chewing your food thoroughly, I can't tell you how many people do not chew their food thoroughly. They take two or three bites, wolf it down, swallow and that's that but your body 
can't break that food down efficiently. Your body needs it broken up into smaller clumps, right? So think about a fire. For anyone that's ever tried to start a fire, how do you light a fire? Do you light the actual log or do you light the kindling underneath the log? You light underneath. And why do you do that? The reason is because you have more surface area for the flame to catch. There's less surface area on that big log, but there's a lot more surface area under all that kindling. So you want to chew your food thoroughly so that you have more surface area for the hydrochloric acid in your gut to break that food down. So that's the first thing that I think people need to do. Um, another thing, and this is going to sound really weird, but this is all anecdotally. So I don't want anyone to you know, take this as gospel because I get a lot of pushback from practitioners on this, but just hear me out, okay? I think one of the things that helped me, and a lot of this comes from my own personal experience, but removing your, your body from any chemical exposure. And what do I mean by that? So things like, you're going to freak out, cologne and perfume. Why do you have to wear that every day? Why do you have to spray cologne on your body and perfume every day? That's a chemical that's going into your body and your immune system is reacting to that. Same thing with deodorant and antiperspirant. Yeah, it might be great in social situations. You don't stink, <laughs> but we sweat for a reason, right? Our body is trained to get things out. And if it can't get it out because we're using an antiperspirant, now we're blocking the very pathway that our body needs to get rid of toxins. So if you can't sweat, you can't get rid of toxins. Yeah, Another I thing think- like... I think, I think that's where you <laughs> lost me too. <laughs> I knew it. I know like, right there. Tyrone uh, just lost his chick magnet. Like I don't really it's gotta know. Smell good. I mean, <laughs> uh, you, uh, you know what? I'm not somebody that wears cologne. Uh, I am somebody that wears deodorant unless I'm going to stay home. <laughs> and, unless it's the weekend and I'm hanging out by myself. Right. Then I, then I'm like, all right, cool. I won't, but you lost me on like the, I know, I know. You know and it's like, a weird uh, one. To me here, I, to what me about it's a some of the nat- of, no, more wait, natural products? Let me finish. So to me, it's a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> That's all I'm saying, right? To me, it's like- I, I get it. I get uh, it. Our body is also somewhat efficient at, if it's working properly, removing toxins and things like that. That's why we have a liver, right? So- That's why we have a liver. We have- um, skin, we have lungs, and we have intestines. All those can detox for us. But you said the main thing, if our body's working correctly. Exactly. If, if it's not and overloaded. That's, that's the problem. <clears throat> I think so many of us are overloaded. Yeah. Back in the day, no one had issues to food. No one reacted to food. But we're doing that now. And yeah. I think it's because we are exposed to a lot of chemicals. Now, I'm not saying deodorant's going to be the thing that, you know, puts course, you over the edge. Course. I'm going to say, <laughs> but it's all of these me, things in total. You had me at food sensitivity. You lost me at <laughs> the other stuff. Well, wait, oh, you- oh I, I can keep going. There are more freaky things. <laughs> <laughs> wait, you have me though. So let me just jump in here because from a female standpoint, to what you're, what you're speaking to, like, I think about, I look at makeup, the type of Mm -hmm. shampoos that I use. I definitely have switched my deodorant to more of the natural. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not going to go without deodorant either, but I like more of the natural products. And I think any female listener that's listening to this, we have all been told those very things when it comes to the makeup, perfume, and anything that we're putting on our bodies. Because for us as females, like women go and get their nails done. There's lots of chemicals in nail polish Mm -hmm. and the types of nails that they get done. Those types of things are definitely, I mean, I would just say from a female standpoint for myself and my clientele, 
I talk about with them, we talk about that to look at what's in the products. We're much more aware when it comes to makeup and hair products, absolutely for sure. So I'm not, I don't know is my answer, Like, well, I, but I'm definitely but, but, more well, conscious of what I put on my body. So that's the, but that's the piece that I'm going to say is like, there's no, like that. that's also like, it goes along with the argument of pesticides yeah. and you know, I've seen these documentaries where they talk about pesticides and they're just like, oh, look, these people stopped eating pesticides and now there's no pesticides in their body. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. But that doesn't prove whether or not it's good or bad for your health. So like to me, it's just one of those things where it's like inconclusive. There's not really research to show any of that. Is there a possibility that there might be an effect on certain makeups or, or certain uh, other chemicals that are in your body? Yeah, absolutely. But there's really nothing to support or back that. Well, that's why I'm saying it's anecdotal, but yeah. understand our skin is the largest organ in our body. Our epidermis, it, it takes on so much. So anything that we put on it gets absorbed into the body. And once it's absorbed into the body, it then interacts with the immune system. So from my perspective, I think if I can put less stuff on my body, the less I'll put on. Now that doesn't mean that I don't shave and I don't put shaving cream on there. I don't put that oil on there to make it all nice and easy to shave off. I do. I mean, I have to, otherwise my face will be all, you know, scratched up. Razor and burn and stuff. Razor right? burn. <laughs> it won't yeah. look good. Yeah. But if I can remove something and it's not going to have a huge effect on me, then I'm just going to remove it. So, but I'm also married. So, you know, uh, I can let that myself go. <laughs> Wait, now, now, now. You're, you're recently married, right? Correct. Yeah. Congrats. Congrats on that. Thank you. And thank you. And uh, you did a Zoom wedding. I did a Zoom wedding because you of the did? pandemic. I did. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. And it was so amazing because it took out all the stress there of having to invite a million people over find and the find a venue, find <laughs> find a band, find the music, create a list, uh, find um, all the different foods I like and the cake and the desserts and you know what's the entree going to be? What are the appetizers going to be? This and that. Who's invited? Who's sitting where? You know, these people don't like each other, so we have to keep them apart. <laughs> this did one you, didn't come to did my you, way. Uh, did you do like a, you just showed the top half and you weren't wearing any pants and you just, <laughs> <I> <laughs> went, like, <laughs> there, there were a few people in the room, so I had to be, you know, G rated, but no, we did wear actuals, you know, clothing and, uh, it, it looked good from top and bottom, but, uh, from my perspective, it was great because I didn't Less have stress. to worry about that. And I didn't have yeah. to wait a year to do it. You know, oh. we've been together for a little over six years. So it was just like, you know what, why not? I'm not going to let a pandemic stop me. And you know what? Even if I were to postpone all this for a year or so, who's to say that this time next year, we're still not in this mm -hmm. because I'm going to be upfront right now. I'm not volunteering for this vaccine because, <laughs> you know, it, it happened. Look, vaccines have to be studied for a long time. I'm not going to be the person that jumps up and says, I'm volunteering myself because I don't know what the long-term ramifications are. We, we just haven't studied them. So it's possible that it's totally fine and it's, it'll prevent you from getting the virus and, you know, life, you know, moves well, on. I don't and think that's we're that. not, are we even close to a vaccine? I feel, feel like it's going to take a while. I don't, I don't know, but I'm just saying, even if this time next year we have it, I'm not volunteering myself for that. So I don't want to put my plans on hold for it. So that's why we just decided to do it sooner rather than later. That's right. But that's why I can get away with not wearing deodorant all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely cannot get away with wearing no deodorant for sure. So well, I, I just want to explain. Go Nicole, for it. I, I get it. I, I totally get it. When I first did it, 
I stunk for <laughs> three to four weeks. It was, it was putrid. And then you just got used to your stench. It was vile. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah, and then you just kind of get used to it. And then it Listen, just Listen, Ryan, of... I'm dating and I'm trying to find me a good-looking man, so <laughs> Well, maybe. I what can't you could get do rid is... of the deodorant right now. <laughs> just try. Just go one night, see what happens. <laughs> but I found I... <laughs> I found that when I first did it, I got nervous that people were going to be able to tell. Yeah. So that that brought on a lot of anxiety. So I sweat more when like, that happens. Exactly. Right. And so the first like month or so was absolute hell for me. Yeah. And I'm a total <laughs> dork when Wait, it comes Nicole, to dating. Nicole, you can, you can find... <laughs> so I sweat so bad. But you can find one of those guys that are into like sniffing... Shut uh, up! <laughs> sniffing hey, there's a lid for every pot, Nicole. <laughs> I don't want that kind of guy. Let me put that right out there into the universe. If you are sn- into sniffing armpits, you we're not compatible. <laughs> you might have just, in- no, Daron, you know what? She just earlier in the podcast said that she's all concerned about the audience. And meanwhile, for all she knows, she just alienated half of them. <laughs> the right, ratings so, now will plummet. So back to food sensitivities. I, I want to wrap up with something. And I want to wrap up with if you have some like takeaways for people, for things that they can do at yeah. home, if they don't maybe have access to food sensitivity right now. And if you do want access to food sensitivity testing, uh, I'm going to direct them to your website, which is gutrxn.com. Mm-hmm. And to reach out, if you have any questions, uh, shoot us a DM or uh, Ryan, do you have an Instagram? Okay, so I do, but I hate social media. All right, so I'm just website. On it. Just go to my website. Go to the website um, and, they, and they can reach you through there. Absolutely. Yep. All right. And then if you have a few takeaways for people, uh, you know, maybe if they want to try some stuff on their own in terms of food sensitivity, I'm not really feeling well, I'm tired, my nose is stuffed, whatever their symptoms are, I have eczema. Uh, What do you have for our audience? Okay. So this is going to be tough, but I'm going to try my best. Okay. If you're out there and you feel like perhaps some of what I've said has spoken to you or the spirit has moved you and you now want to try this, one of the things you could try doing is eliminating any foods that you feel that you might be addicted to. And the reason I say that is because there's this thing called the allergy addiction syndrome, where when there's a food that you are addicted to, when you eat it, you get the same feeling that a drug addict gets when they get their first hit of that drug. And you feel really good, you're on a high. But then after a while of not having that food, now you feel bad. So if you find yourself in that situation with a certain food. And I know for myself, I have that love affair with chocolate. I mean, I could not live without chocolate. To me, a day without chocolate is like a day without the sun. So I need to have it. And so what does that probably tell you? (laughs) My sensitivities may have shifted. So if you find yourself in a situation like that, consider the possibility of maybe potentially one day considering removing that food or foods from your diet. And then at the same point, understand that it could take a while for you to see a benefit. But again, if you don't get all the foods out, you're not going to see the full benefit. So it's like sitting on a seat full of tacks, right? If you sit on 10 tacks, your butt's going to hurt. And if you remove four of those tacks, just randomly, you're going to feel a little bit better, but you're still going to be in a lot of pain. So until you get all of them out, you're not going to be 100% better. So just keep that in mind. If you do go that route, then understand you might not feel 100% better. Maybe you'll feel 20%, 50% better, but you might not feel 100%, and that's okay. Because it's 
just trial and error at that point. So what I will say is food sensitivity, I think there's definitely a thing there. I think we need a lot more time for the research to evolve. Ryan, I think you would agree with that, right? Oh, absolutely. I would be happy as a pig rolling in my own poop right now if there were all <laughs> of these studies that I could produce to say 100% unequivocally, these are the reasons for X, Y, and Z. We know with yeah. IBS, yeah. food can be a component and we know that the T cells do act up. But I would love to have so much more research behind me because I get pushback from so many, just not even other doctors, just dietitian colleagues who say that I'm peddling misinformation, I'm peddling woo, I'm peddling quackery. And I have to say, if we know that food can be therapeutic and it can help someone, and we know that food can be fatal via an allergy, how come there's no gray in the middle? How come it's one and the other, but there's nothing in the middle? And I, I disagree with that. So I think there definitely is something in yeah, the middle. I, I think agree. there's definitely a, a sensitivity piece. I just think that the research hasn't progressed to definitively say, hey, this theory, this hypothesis, like this is a thing. Um, I think 100%. it's going to take, yeah. take time, right? It's like the concept of building a house, right? Research studies being the bricks. Uh, there's a term for that that way of thinking, right? So essentially you're trying to build a house and then you've got a bunch of bricks and you're just laying them on top of each other. Eventually you build a house and you're like, all right, great. This house shows that definitively speaking, we've figured it out, we've mapped it out, we've built a structure around it and now you know, more and more practitioners can execute it. I think it's just going to take more time for that house to be built. I don't necessarily think that we're there yet and we're even close to completely building it, but I think that we are definitely onto something. There is an in-between from, hey, I've got nothing going on and there's an allergy. There's definitely a food sensitivity. There's more intolerances, things like that. Um, and those are definitely things that we will look into in the future. And I would be excited to I, th I think this was fun. I think this, I'd be excited to later on as more research uh, emerges for us to kind of revisit this conversation uh, later down the road. Absolutely. I would, I would be so happy to do that. Awesome. And uh, I'll continue wearing my deodorant. Me too. <laughs> Just, Just rethink that. Sleep on it. Sleep okay. on it. Okay. Um, all right. So we're going to wrap it up there. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars and comment, and you will hear us next week. Bye.